Did you guys have a nice Thanksgiving? Yes. Cool. Good to have you with us this morning. My grandson was in the, one of my grandsons was sitting in here in the first service. He's about pushing five years old. And uh, two weeks before Thanksgiving, he said to us, I love Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I said, why do you love Thanksgiving? And he said, I love pumpkin pie. And, uh, and, then he had, and then he continued on. He said, and the reason why I love pumpkin pie, because I love pumpkin pie with... You guys know what that means. Yeah, whipped cream. So uh, I hope that you had plenty of... On your pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. Or maybe you had uh, plenty of pumpkin pie with your whipped cream. But good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 24. We're going to begin at verse 27, then head into 25, chapter 25, and look at verses 1 through 12. Kind of condensing it this morning a bit because I wanted us to kind of pause and focus on this topic, which I think is a very critical, very important topic for us. Guard your heart is the title of this weekend's message. Let me uh, begin by saying what I said last week, and I told you that we were going to dive into this topic a little bit deeper. And here's, here's the statement that I, you heard me say a few times last week, and then I'm going to start the message off with it this week. The most important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. Let me say that again, just so that we really understand that. The most important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. And I've heard a lot of people say, and, they, and typically we all do this, we blame, we blame our, our circumstances for the way that we are. We say, well, I am the way I am because, I mean, wouldn't you be if you experienced what I experienced? I've heard that a lot. And, and by the way, I'm not in any way uh, minimizing the impact of your chromosomes, your circumstances, and the conditioning, your upbringing. I'm not minimizing that, but what you need to know is that though those do influence you, they do not control you. And, and the most important and decisive factor in your life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. In fact, I'm convinced that if what happens in you is that you begin to get a God-entranced vision of life to where you begin to realize more than anything that God is for you and not against you, that he is more than enough as he has proved to us on the cross, then you can handle anything that happens to you. So the most important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. New Living Translation puts it this way, it determines the course of your life. Came across an interesting definition for mental health few years ago, it was actually by a Christian psychologist, and he said mental health is being in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety. I, to be quite honest with you, I don't know how you could be in touch with reality and be relatively free of anxiety if you don't have Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, if you don't have him and if you don't have a, a, a vision of who he is and what he has done for you, that's why we tend to chase after all these things that will medicate us and, and take us out of that reality because we can't deal with that reality. But I'm convinced that you can be in touch with reality and the greater reality, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, and be relatively free of anxiety regardless of what you may be going through. And so that's where we're headed today. Three questions we're looking at after we read our text. What is a guarded heart? Really important for us to understand that. What is an unguarded heart? And then um, what's the importance of a, of a guarded heart? So let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. We'll pray. We'll dive right into our text. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. And as we embark upon this study here today, we know that this is, this is really uh, the heart of the matter, is the matter of the heart. You want our hearts more than anything 
And so, Lord, teach us, teach us what a guarded heart is, what an unguarded heart is, and, and help us to see the importance of, above all else, guarding our hearts because it is, the, it is the wellspring of life. It determines the course of our lives. Help us to see you more clearly. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see your beauty and your glory this morning unlike ever before so that no matter what we may face, from now until the end of the year and into the new year, God, we will know that we have all that we need in you. Lord, our desire is to encounter you this morning and to really see you more clearly. So, God, as we study your word, make yourself known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at your text. I'm going to walk through our text and maybe pause briefly just a couple different times here. But... Uh, Starting in verse 27, chapter 24, when two years had elapsed, Paul is in prison on trumped-up charges, false accusations, and uh, they're, they're untrue. And so, in fact, he's, he's had attempts on his life multiple times to murder him. And so now he's been, when two years had elapsed, remember he was in Jerusalem, and so the court there sent him into Caesarea under Governor Felix, and uh, so now he's been there for two years. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Stop there just for a minute. So what they're asking is that Paul be brought back to Jerusalem. We want Paul back in Jerusalem so that we can make these accusations and things can, uh, we can take care of them there. Why? Notice what it says. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So it's been two years and these guys are still seething with anger and bitterness. Important point. They want to murder him. They want to kill him. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with him, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat at the, on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Stop there just for a minute. Take a look up here. This is what you need to understand. I told you this last week. I'm just going to remind you here once again. You need to be aware of the difference between when people are making dogmatic assertions. These guys are making dogmatic assertions. There's no proof, no evidence. Versus what you're going to see Paul is Paul gives a defense. He already gave a defense when he was uh, before uh, Felix and so, but, but Paul gives uh, defensible arguments. So there's a difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. The reason why I say that is because we're heading into that season when you see a lot of shows on PBS, the Learning Channel, uh, the History Channel, where they, they make these dogmatic assertions about Jesus, which are inaccurate to what the Bible teaches us. And, and oftentimes I've seen people who who are intellectually lazy, be kind of thrown off because of that. Well, is that true about Jesus? And, and, and they don't know the difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. And this is what you need to know about the Christian faith. The Christian faith, the gospel, is intellectually, intellectually sound and existentially satisfying. Let me, let me explain what I mean by intellectually sound. In other words, there is enough history evidence and facts to tilt the scale towards probability beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus really did exist, did walk this earth, really is who he said he is, God in the flesh. This Bible is really a God book. There's plenty of evidence for any serious-minded thinking person. But there's way too many lazy people intellectually in America and so oftentimes we listen and they go, oh, is that true? Yeah, that must be true. Rather than to say, wait, 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 wait. 
Is there any evidence? Because here's the evidence that I have. And by the way, you can reason to a point of probability in favor of Christianity, the gospel, but it takes commitment to lead you to assurance to this existential satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is what you'll find, that once you've kind of, you've built the case, you begin to understand, wow, there's plenty of evidence. In fact, it takes, when you begin to understand the evidence, it actually takes more faith not to believe than to believe. Because the evidence is so, so weighs in favor of, of Christianity. So I just, I just use this as a point because they're, they're making these accusations. They have no evidence. Dogmatic assertions. Paul has defensible arguments. And the same is true as it relates to Christianity. But let me just say something about the, about the existential satisfaction that comes as a result of knowing Christ. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to have the sweetness on your tongue. It's one thing to know that Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to have his lordship so, um, so at the center of your life that it chases away all the fears in your life. That no matter what you're facing, you know that he is more than enough. So, so you've got to move beyond just the evidence. Yeah, it's intellectually sound. You've got to move into the existential satisfying because he is more than satisfying. Um, he is eternally and infinitely satisfying. He is our most satisfying reality. Nothing or no one will satisfy you more than Jesus. And that might sound a little strange to some of you that are just kind of new to this whole thing, this whole Jesus thing in Christianity, but that's what Christianity is about. It's about, about finding your deepest pleasure in the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing him and walking with him. So, so there's a difference between just saying you're a Christian and truly walking with him, knowing him, experiencing him, realizing what he did on the cross was done for you and it ravishes your heart and it transforms your life and you face the obstacles of life totally different. It's not what happens to you, but what happens in you. And when that happens in you, the reality of who Christ is, the work of the Holy Spirit and man, it, it makes, makes all the difference in the world and how you do life, how you deal with the trials and how you, you don't succumb to the temptations of your life because he is your most satisfying reality. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was just kind of a side note, a little preaching time there. Okay. So, so let's go back to the study. Let's work through this. And so Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And we, we saw this in, in chapter 24. He went into more details and more defensible arguments. What he's saying, no, I'm not a troublemaker. No, uh, I'm not part of a sect, a cult that's uh, against the government. And no, I haven't profaned the temple. That's not why I was there. He says, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now notice this with Paul. If you've been sitting in prison for two years... Would you be like ticked off? I can't believe it. These are trumped up charges. Why would you just keep me in here? I want to kill all of you. You think Paul's going to say that? No. No, because he has this God-entranced vision of life. He knows that his life is in the loving, wise control of, of his daddy, his father, God. His life is in his hands. He's, he's resting in him. In fact, you're going to see humble confidence. You're going to see a guy that says, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried to the Jews. I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. He's saying, hey, listen, if I have done something wrong, I'm willing to face death. I'll take responsibility. That's, that's a great deal of humility. You have anything against me, I'm willing to, to accept it. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is God's word. Let's talk about this. What is a guarded heart? What is an unguarded heart? And why is it so important? Here's the first one. First point on your notes. First fill in the blank. We've got to define heart. Your heart is your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally trust, love, are living for and hope in. So the fill in the blank there is it's what you're living for. 
Your heart is your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally trust, love, are living for, and hope in. The word heart is used close to 900 times in the Bible. So I would say that it's probably really an important word, would you say? Pretty important biblical word? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you heard... uh, Actually, Jesus said to the Pharisees, making an accusation against him, he said, you worship me with your lips, but your, your hearts are far from me. So he was saying, you can actually kind of robotically go through the motions and almost kind of look real good on the outside, but in, in actuality, your heart is a long ways from God. And so, above all else, guard your heart, the verse that we quoted at the very beginning, Proverbs 4.23. So 900 times... The Bible uses this word heart, and the heart is actually the heart of the matter. It's really about getting down to the heart. So if you're going to learn how to respond to the circumstances of life, you've got to know what, what is going on inside of you. In fact, uh, one of my favorite verses you hear is quoted a lot. It's actually in our living room, in our home. It's uh, Matthew six twenty one. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. In fact, uh, we're gonna, we'll, you'll see it as we work down. In fact, you could even write it down there in the notes right there because it's a good place to put it, but you're going to see it a little bit further down in the notes. But in fact, let's, let's uh, recite that verse. That would be a good memory verse for you. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Pretty easy to, to memorize, isn't it? So let's say that together. Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. Did I say that right? All of a sudden, I had like this brain freeze right about halfway through that verse. I hate when that happens. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Okay, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Where you're, let's say it together. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. One more time. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So, so your treasure, everybody has a treasure in here. Your treasure is your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally trust, love, or living for, and hope in. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So your treasure controls your heart. Whatever controls your heart controls your behavior. I know we live in a day where people really emphasize behavioral modification. It's not going to last. It doesn't work. I know you want to overcome some of the habits that you have, but you don't focus on your behavior. You've got to focus on your heart. You change your heart. You change the treasure of your heart, and then you begin to change your heart, which ultimately changes your behavior. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. What controls your heart? Whatever controls your treasure controls your heart. Whatever controls your heart controls your behavior. And so it's important to always remember that. Let's take a look at the next point on your notes. The true God... Our treasure of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about this whole idea of core commitments, what you most fundamentally trust, love, or living for, and hope in. But it's talking about your treasure, but it's also talking about your thoughts, your emotions, and your volition, your will. That part of you that begins to make decisions about your life. And so when we take that deep, we look into our thoughts our thoughts, the true God or the treasure of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. Proverbs 23, 7, New American Standard Bible puts it this way. As a person thinks within himself, then so is he. How many are familiar with that verse? Interesting verse, great verse. In other words, whatever dominates your thoughts, that's how you will live your life. So if you're happy right now, it's because you're probably thinking some happy thoughts. If you're sad right now, it's probably because you're thinking sad thoughts. As a person thinks within himself, then so is he. Makes sense. Another uh, few verses here, Romans 8, 5 through 8. Great text here. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What is flesh? What does that mean? I didn't have a chance to really study that verse out this last week because I was eating too much turkey. But uh, no, actually, I know exactly what it is. What is flesh? Could flesh be what I did on Thanksgiving morning, the very first thing that I did on Thanksgiving morning? I had a piece of pumpkin pie and chased it with coffee. That was how I started my Thanksgiving day. And then I went over to my mom and dad's house to pick up some tables and chairs because we usually have a whole lot of people that come over to our house. And guess what? My mom had just brought out of the oven. Ooh, 
pecan pie. And guess what I had? Pecan pie. And I chased it with a cup of coffee. (laughs) Praise God. Is that flesh? It could be, but it it depends. It depends. Who am I doing this for? We'll talk about that. But but then, and then guess what? I had Thanksgiving dinner. More pie. No, I didn't. I had some good food. And then some more pie. It was good. It was good. Pumpkin pie, pecan pie, fudge. I got a hangover, man, like crazy. I think I ate too many sweets. (laughs) I'll just get back to the text, sorry. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Actually, the flesh just means to be self-centered. It means to be self-absorbed. That's the flesh. Just life becomes about me. It's all about me. Oh, by the way, if you're spiritually alienated, it can't help but be about you. Because if you're spiritually alienated, you're going to be psychologically alienated because you're going to be lacking what only God can give you, and that's acceptance, significance, security in, a, in, a, in an eternal sense. And so, therefore, it's obvious that your mind's going to be preoccupied with, with yourself. So it says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And we make life about us. But those who live according to the Spirit, so according to the Spirit would be that you are captivated. You have this God-entranced vision of life. You want God more than anything. You've had an encounter with Him. Your life is not about you, but it's about Him. It's not about your glory, but it's about His glory. It's not about you making much of you, but you making much of Him. That's That's what it means. So you live according to the Spirit. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice what it says, though. It says, for to set the mind on the Spirit is death. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Ooh, that's false teaching. (laughs) I just said the wrong word there, didn't I? That's how my mind works. So for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. Archbishop William Temple once said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God or treasure of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. So let me ask you some questions. Let's think about what you typically think about. Okay? It's not too hard. Most of us don't do this, though. It's important for you to do this. Here's some questions. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What are you thinking about right now other than this message? Are you thinking about something other than this message? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home or a car or cabin in the mountains or a relationship with a particular person? You see, one or two daydreams are not an indication of idolatry. But, but here's the big question. Here's the kind of foundational question. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? You need to know that. When I began to discover what my heart was dominated by, it frightened me. I realized, man, my heart is an idol factory. As John Calvin says, it truly is. And my mind and my heart constantly is going and finds its its sense of acceptance and significance, its core commitments, and and most fundamentally, its trust, love, and and living for and hope in in other things other than Christ. That's what I found. I mean, and so you've heard me share this before. Let me share it again. So because I have this tendency, this inclination towards the sinful nature part of me wants to please people. I'm a people pleaser. So typically I'm dominated with conversations that I've had, brain debates over what they said, how I responded. I should have said this. I should have done that. Back and forth. It dominates my thoughts. But not only that, does, does that dominate my thoughts, but work dominates my thoughts. I'm thinking about what I need to do or what I didn't do and what 
I need to do tomorrow and, and this checklist so that I can feel better about myself. And so I feel good when I've had good conversations with people and there's been a little bit of praise exchanged and then I've got all my list, my checklist down. I feel good. I, I feel good about life. But why should I feel about, good about life when I have the cross and what he says about me is the most important thing that could be ever said about me. But it's because those are the things that dominate my thoughts. Those are my idols. Those are, those are that's my God. I mean, that's, that's what we do. That's, and so it's important to be able to understand what it is in your life. Here's your next thought, next point on your notes. Guarded hearts love God so much that he dominates their solitude. So we're talking about a guarded heart. Your heart is your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally trust, love, are living for, and hope in. The true treasure or God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. Guarded hearts love God so much that he dominates their solitude. That's why it says in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven, the great commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What would you have done if you were under house arrest or in prison for two years? What if you were deprived of your, your stuff, your, your iPod, iPad, iPhone? What would you do? Freak out? Would you, uh, how would you have responded to that? What would you do if you couldn't watch movies, read a book, surf the internet? What do you think Paul was doing all this time? We, we kind of know what he was doing. In fact, you can go back to uh, Acts twenty four twenty three. It said there, then he gave orders. This is Felix, the governor. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, that is Paul, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. So we know that he had friends coming and going. We also know that eventually when he makes his way to Rome, is that he wrote a number of books that we find in the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So he actually wrote, he penned some of these books, which is phenomenal. Some of these books are rich and have unbelievable depth. So, so what would we say about Paul? I would say that his mind was filled with God. He had a God-entranced vision of life. It's, it's, it's sad, research tells us, that a normal Normal human being can, should, accumulate enough exciting, enriching, compelling material in their mind that they could be in solitary confinement for two years and never get bored. Is that true about you? What are you filling your mind with? What dominates your thoughts? What's most important to you? Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God. Uh, subtitled, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. In the chapter, he talks about a real relationship with God. He, he quotes uh, uh, Romans 8, and he mentions this, Romans 8. He says, these verses, Romans 8, verses 15 through 16, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And he talks about, and he, he asks the question, when was the last time, and this is my question for you, when was the last time you had that sense that you're a child of God and the reality of that chased away the fears in your life? When was the last time you sensed the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? Now, this is what Francis says is that the problem is, is that we've got, uh, we're too comfortable was one of the things that he said. He said, why do we need the comforter as the, one of the names of the Holy Spirit when we're way too comfortable? It's because we're probably not really attempting much for God, attempting great things for God or expecting great things from God. We're pretty comfortable. And so therefore we're not really too dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. But then he also said something else. He said that we've got way too much volume in our lives, just way too much noise. I was listening to a guy last night, and uh, this is what he said, and I, I happen to believe this, is that he says that we're, we're a culture currently that we are developing a self-induced ADD. 
because of the Facebook and the Twitter and the text messages and the voicemail and all these things, that we jump from one relationship to the next relationship to one conversation to the next conversation, from one topic to the next topic so rapidly, so quickly, that we don't spend much time focusing on any one given item or topic. And so when was the last time you focused in on God and begin to fill your mind with the beauty and the value of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in your behalf? I mean, that, that's a great question for us to ask. And, uh, you know, usually when I'm working through a message like this, I'm kind of debating on different illustrations. I've got a couple different. I'm going to throw at you all my illustrations this morning, okay? We'll be here until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. But there's an illustration that I, I talked about. Remember me talking about Tim Tebow last week? I got this... Interesting illustration that kind of goes along with this, um, this whole idea. Here's, let me, before I give him as an illustration here, here's my question. How, how could you ever, how could you ever get bored if you have his promise to never leave you or forsake you? You have God. But see, if, if you haven't entertained him and practiced his presence and understand that, the reality of that verse or, or accumulated a number of verses that helps to reinforce that in your life, solitary confinement is going to drive you crazy, but not Paul. Tim Tebow. I kind of liken the guy, you know? It, it, it's just, it's really interesting what I read about him this last week. And I'm not too fond of the Denver Broncos, but... Uh, did I offend anybody? I'm kidding. I'm actually kind of liking them too, believe it or not. Can't get the Cardinals going. My goodness sakes. Uh, Got to root for somebody. But this was interesting, and, and I'm not putting him up on a pedestal whatsoever. I just, I think that he's, he's an outspoken. I mean, first of all, he's a fullback playing quarterback, which I love that. He's one tough dude. But he is not afraid to speak up about Jesus. Now listen to his response here. Um... Tim Tebow responds to Jake Plummer's comments on his faith. This is from USA Today, uh, Nate Davis. <clears throat> he says, a day after former Broncos quarterback uh, Jake Plummer said in a radio interview that he wished the man currently taking the snaps in Denver, Tim Tebow, would curb his references to Jesus and his faith, Tebow responded. And so Tebow asked about Plummer's remarks in an interview on ESPN's first take. Tebow said, check this out. If you're married and you have a wife and you really love your wife, is it good enough to only say to your wife, I love her the day you get married? Or should you tell her every single day when you wake up in every opportunity? And that's how I feel about my relationship with Jesus Christ. Is It's that... It is the most important thing in my life. So anytime I get an opportunity to tell him that I love him or given an opportunity to shout him out on national TV, I'm going to take that opportunity. And so I look at it as a relationship that I have with him that I want to give him the honor and glory anytime I have the opportunity. And then right after after I give him the honor and glory, I always try to give my teammates the honor and glory. And that's how it works because Christ comes first in my life and then my family and then my teammates. I respect Jake's opinion and I really appreciate his compliment of calling me a winner. But I feel like anytime I get the opportunity to give the Lord some praise, he is due for it. Is that good or what? Right on. Right on. I love the guy for that. Here, here's how important is uh, football to Tebow? It's, it's probably important, but not near as important as his heart towards God. He has, I believe, that based on interviews and based on what, I, what I'm seeing, I mean, don't put him on a pedestal. He's human just like the rest of us. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to say things and do things. But I believe that he has a, a smitten heart. His heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the real deal. So let me ask you this. Are you smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus?
But you can't get him off your mind. See, that's love. And that's Christianity. That's normal Christianity. And my prayer for you is that you would be so captivated by his beauty that nothing, nothing could crowd out, crowd that out of your mind or out of your heart. And I'm telling you, when that is true about you, you can face anything. You can face anything. It just, it really shows you, shows you the crazy idolatry we got in our, in our, in our head and our minds. I mean, if you, if you had any idea of how my mind goes up here, it's just like, you know, my mind's just all over. Oh, I look back and I see somebody yawning. Oh, why are they yawning? Am I boring? I need to, I need to get a little bit louder. And, and wow, that's a big mouth too. Wow. They've got a really big mouth. And, and oh, what about this person? How come this person over here is sleeping? Come on. Do I get, get a bit louder? And so I start looking around and I see people and believe me, uh, I can see what you're doing right now. Are you nervous? Shouldn't be. I'm the least to worry about. You need to think about him. You need to be here for him. To know him, to experience him. So do you know him? (laughs) He's for real. I believe for Tebow, Jesus is real. Jesus is more real than anything. And so any opportunity he gets, it doesn't matter. Whether he's playing bad or playing good, he's going to exalt Christ. Because he has found in Jesus, and this is true about Christianity, that he is his most satisfying reality. And, and, and that's, that's Christianity. Uh, there's a guy that you've heard me quote before. I'll just uh, quote a little bit because, and then we'll move on. But uh, it's this Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book. It's one of my favorite books. So I mention it at least a couple times a year. It's called Practicing the Presence of God, 17th Century Monk Who Found Incredible Delight in Discipline of Practicing the Presence of God in the Most Menial and Mundane and Even Menacing Times in His Life. This is what he said. We should practice God's presence through a continuing conversation with Him, that it would be shameful to trade such a relationship for trivial foolishness, and that we should feed our souls on the highest thoughts of God. We can find deep joy, he said, by simply being with the Lord. The greatest pains and joys the world has to offer can't compare to experiencing, to the experience of walking with God. He goes on, with him, even the worst day can taste sweet. Without him, even something like winning the lottery would feel like the worst prison sentence. See, that's that God-entranced vision, that big sense of God is more than enough. And so, indeed, God is, he is infinitely and eternally satisfying. But do you know that in your life? Are you experiencing that? So what is an unguarded heart? Let's talk about that. It is allowing my heart to be dominated by anything more than God. So it's allowing my heart to be dominated by anything more than God. I put down a number of verses here. Let me just walk you through them. This is part of the cross-references. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So you're fascinated by Jesus, but your friends are going to just kind of yawn and go, big deal. And it's because the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded their minds. And so you need to pray that God would open their minds and their hearts and their eyes so that they can see the beauty of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul was concerned with the church in Corinth and he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. That fundamentally, that something else would be your, your trust, your love, your hope other than Christ. I'm fearful of that. That's, that's the battle. It's a battle for our hearts and the devotion of our hearts and what will captivate our hearts. And that's why uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, he talks about our warfare is different from the warfare of this world. And that what we have to do is, that, and this, these verses have really helped me out tremendously, we have to take captive every thought and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. So when my thoughts, even while I'm up here, start chasing after all kinds of things and ideas, I've got to chase them down, bring them back, submit them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is an unguarded heart? Is allowing my heart to be dominated by anything more than God. Dallas Willard said this, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell upon. Next point, 
It is happening anytime I am experiencing inordinate desires or emotions. You've heard that from me plenty. Let me reiterate it. Let's walk through this again. So, I know that my mind is being dominated by anything more than God when that which is being, it is being dominated by, for instance, oh, let me, let me walk, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself here for a minute. Let me go back to, to our text just for a moment, then we'll work through that. Because um, I've got a number of verses here we're going to look at. Can you imagine, first of all, these guys that are wanting to kill the Apostle Paul for two years being eaten up by this, this anger and animosity? Let's explore that just for a minute. Why is that? I came across a couple of different quotes. You've heard these before, I'm sure. Here's one. Holding a grudge is letting someone live rent-free in your head. It's true, isn't it? Here's another quote. This is from St. Augustine. Resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. So these guys have grudges. They have resentment. And so anything you want more than God... And his glory is an inordinate desire. So if I'm, I'm more upset over how my team is playing or the scratch on my car or, you know, whatever it is, then I am knowing God, experiencing God, putting God on display in my life, his glory, then I've got an inordinate desire. If I get more excited about the pumpkin pie or the pecan pie than I do God, there's something wrong. Now, now, let me go back to that. I love pumpkin pie. I love pecan pie. I love turkey dressing. I love all that we ate Thanksgiving Day. And that, all of that is a gift from God and ultimately a pointer to God. But I can do that and I can eat that and celebrate that in such a way that it's, it's, it's about me and my glory as opposed to him and his glory. So you can, you, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. You can enjoy those, but, but why are you enjoying those? Are you enjoying them for God's glory or for your own glory? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. <clears throat> but anytime you want, you want more than God, anything you want more than God and his glory is an inordinate desire. And when what you want more than God is in fact, you know, your God is threatened, a marriage, your parenting, your kids, you know, they're not turning out the way you thought they should, your job, when it's threatened, you're not just going to be anxious, you're going to be paranoid. It's going to so control your life. If, if this good thing has become a God thing in your life and it is, it is blocked, you're not just going to be angry, you're going to become bitter over time. If this God, good thing has become a God thing, when you lose it, you're not just going to be sad, you're going to be depressed and maybe even suicidal. For two years, Paul has been in prison and free to love. They have been free and slaves to hate. So let's talk about anger just for a moment. I think it's a good, good thing to talk about. I shared with you last week, you've heard me talk about this before, how I would get upset over drivers. You know, get mad when someone cuts me off or they don't like the way I'm driving. If you don't like the way I'm driving, stay off the sidewalks. Uh, and so... Uh, Okay, dumb joke. But, uh, and I think that there's those that can relate to that. You don't need to confess this morning. You get upset over, you know, the way people drive. Why is that? Why would that make you so angry? I know that part of that I inherited from my dad. I'm not blaming him, but certainly he, he had no problem pulling people off the side of the road and pulling them out through the wing window, <laughs> pounding on them. I saw that as a little boy. And he would do that. And so it's interesting. Why, why do you get so angry? Why do we get so angry? Why did I get so angry? I think that you have to explore those, those anger issues because it's, it's truly an issue. We don't get angry because of what someone has done to us, but our evaluation of what someone has done to us. It's not what they did. It's our evaluation. What makes you angry is not what has happened to you, but what you tell yourself about what has happened to you. And what makes you angry is, is not what is blocked, but it's what you, what you say to yourself of what that which is blocked means to you. It's the meaning you put behind that. So, so as you explore that, you've got to really look at... So here's what I had to ask myself. What is so big? What's the big thing that is so important to me that I'm defending? 
And that I would destroy anybody that would interfere with that. So you got to look. So you're defending something that's extremely important to you. And you're, and you're destroying something or someone that would interfere with that. So for me, it was my, and typically nine times out of ten, it's our ego, it's our self-esteem, it's our pride. And somebody flips me off, how dare you? Because I'm very codependent in that sense that I, I like the approval of people. You're not giving me approval, I'll run you off the road. Okay. That's fair. So there's that. So not only that, it's kind of like you're getting in my way, you're slowing me down. I'm a performance-oriented type person. Come on, can't you drive better than that? So there's, there's something deep. But here's what exacerbates this. As I thought about it through the years and as I've been able to work on it in my own life, that, that if you have an underlying sense of... Uh, that life just hasn't played out the way that I had planned. I set some pretty big goals and they just haven't worked out very good. And I, I'm not only mad at me, but I'm mad at God because I did all the right things. I'm not, if there's that underlying current. And then if from day to day, you know, you run across people that don't treat you quite right and you get hurt with those hits, you get hurt. And if you don't deal with those hurts appropriately, you accumulate them over time. And that becomes an undercurrent in your life. See, you've got this accumulation of stuff, this undercurrent, so it only makes sense. It's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. The guy pulls out in front of you. I'm ready to run him off the road. There's a number of things that are going on. You've got to dive deep into your heart. And it's got to be a day-by-day, moment-by-moment kind of a thing. What is it that dominates your heart? If there's bitterness or anger or frustration or whatever it is, I'm telling you, Jesus can set you free. As you begin to allow your heart and your mind to be dominated by him. One more point. This is an opportunity to learn how to apply. So when I, when I find myself with these inordinate, uh, you know, like, why am I so anxious? Why am I so restless? You need to ask yourself that. And uh, this is an opportunity to learn how to apply the love of God to my heart, specific to where it is most restless. Now, I'm not, now, why would I use the word inordinate? Why would I say inordinate anxiety, anger, depression? Is there anything wrong with anxiety, anger, and depression? No, not at all. That's how God wired us up. We're emotional, we're relational. That's how we relate. But when it becomes dominating in our life, when it dominates our life, that's when we need to ask, what is so important in my life that's being threatened or blocked or lost in some way? We need to ask those deep questions. And that's a beautiful opportunity to learn how to apply the love of God to my heart specific to where it is most restless. I gave you a number of verses there, but Psalm 42.5, it says this, This is a great psalm. He's talking to himself. He's saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? See, he's in touch with, oh my goodness, I got so much anxiety right now, I think I'm going to kill somebody. (laughs) You ever feel like that? That's what he's doing. Why are you so downcast? I am so depressed right now. I'm feeling, having, I feel like killing myself. He doesn't say that, but you almost kind of get that that idea. There's some major despondency going on. But notice what he says as he's talking to himself. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's why it says in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. So we've got to take these, these bundle of emotions, whatever's going on, and take them to, to God, to Christ. And allow his love to begin to meet us there at that point of need. There's a quick video and then we'll wrap this up. Last three fill in the blanks or so. But there's a, there's a movie. It's called A Beautiful Mind. Anybody ever see the movie? Interesting movie. Great movie. It's about John Nash who is a brilliant mathematician. Won a Nobel Prize and, uh, back in the 90s. But he had schizophrenia and he struggled with his thoughts and hallucinations. And in this video, he's talking to the the president of Princeton wanting to teach. And so the the president asked him about, you know, these things that he still sees. And you see these three people walking. So he still sees them. But he has some really good counsel on what he's done to be able to correct that problem. Certainly something that we could all learn from. Check this out. He says something that is really interesting in that conversation initially. He says, I've gotten used to ignoring them. He says, everybody's haunted by their past. And he said, you don't, don't keep feeding it. I've gotten used to ignoring them. 
And so let's, let's talk about that. So what do we need to do here? What's, why is it so important? What's the importance of a guarded heart? Paul is having a lot of bad days. And he can't get a fair trial. Things are not going very well for him. So what should he do? How can he keep his hopes up? How can we keep our hopes up? Here's the next thought on your notes. If your heart is filled with Christ and his love, you can handle anything. If your heart is filled with Christ and his love, you can handle anything. Do you guys agree with that? I'm convinced of that. There's a, there's a place, when he gets to Rome, he's going to write a number of books, and one is Philippians, and in Philippians, he talks about how he's content even in prison, and he makes a statement, some of you memorize this verse, it's a great verse, he says, in the context of contentment, he says, I can do all things through who strengthens me, yeah, that's what he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so let me, let me ask you, what are you facing, what are you struggling with, what temptation are you struggling with, what trial seems to be overwhelming, Look up here. Look at me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Fill your mind with the beauty and the value of Jesus. And I'm telling you, you can get through that. You can get through that. He loves you. He is for you. Here's, here's the next point on your notes, and that is you are a collection of habits, and true change doesn't mean more willpower, but new habits, spiritual disciplines. So some of those habits aren't going to be changed in a week or two. It's going to take a while. It's going to take it, you're going to be able to do it through spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, scripture memorization. Spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to experience the presence of God. Your habits are a reflection of your values. So, I mean, you, we all have habits. We all, we all do things kind of robotically. So begin to develop some good habits of filling your mind with the beauty and the value of Jesus Christ. Nothing on this earth will bring you more pleasure than knowing God intimately. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you'll pursue him more than anything. And you will begin to implement spiritual disciplines in your life that will help you to do that, to increase your capacity to experience more of him. That's what spiritual disciplines are. I would encourage you to do that. Here's your last point in your notes. The more your heart is filled with Christ and his love, the less you'll swagger when you walk and snivel when you talk. You'll be humble and confident. Did you notice how Paul is responding here? Paul is in prison, yet more free than those who are out of prison trying to kill him. And as he's up there talking, as we read there in verses 10 and 11, Paul is not intimidating. He's not trying to be a bully, nor is he intimidated. He's not being bullied. So there's this humble confidence that's present in his life. The more you walk with Christ, the more you will have that humble confidence in your life. Let's do something here. Would you stand with me? We're going we're gonna to pray a prayer together. The prayer is found in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. It'll be up on the big screen. This is how we're going to end our sermon this morning, our teaching time. This is a powerful prayer. This is my prayer for all of us. This would be some great verses for you to memorize to fill your mind with the beauty. You'll see in these verses the very things that we've been talking about here this morning. You guys ready? Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, nice and loud. Let's pray this from our hearts. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Woo! That's good stuff, huh? Praise God. God bless you. Have a great day.